0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well. Hard to believe uh, tomorrow marks Friday. Hard to believe that tomorrow, not only just being Friday, represents the last full week of August. I don't know where August has gone, but it has gone by fast, just like all the other months um, tend to do, especially um, the older we get. We don't have control over that, but... We do have control over how we choose to make the most of each day that we're alive, and how we, and along with uh, making the most of the time that we do have. And so, I'm glad to be back on the air as always with you guys. And um, in this um, s- segment episode to a signal victory the Lake Erie Campaign 1812 to 1813, I should point out that we will be um, discussing a lot of uh, twists and turns but i would also um uh, admit that there will probably be a lot of other twists and turns per other upcoming um segment episodes but i don't i don't personally think uh twists and turns are a bad thing either because you know it's so easy to assume that when two sides go to war against each other that that one side has it um totally well the whole way but it is fair to say that um at the uh, beginning onset to the War of 1812, that things just didn't really start off well for the United States. You know, here we are, um, you know, 36 years um, in terms of having declared our independence from England, and yes, even when the first shots were fired around the world um, in 1775, It was a trial-and-error experience, or a trial-and-error beginning, but at the same time, I will have to admit that um, that when uh, George Washington became commander of the Continental Army, he had a lot of logistical challenges ahead of him, but even as 1775 um, Ended and we proceeded into uh, 1776 and onward. Yes, challenges still remained, but for every defeat the Continental Army uh, endured, they were still able to manage to get back up and do something about it, even in the darkest of moments when it seemed like the uh, flames for independence were going to be completely extinguished altogether. But I do recall from the uh, previous podcast segment episode how we learned that um, that the generation uh, torch, the torch, I should say, to the next generation of officers, especially for the Army, hadn't really been um, passed down. In other words, you know, George Washington being the father of our country from the American Revolutionary War, and also father of our country in many other ways, but there really had not been a true... Um, transfer of power from one generation to the next, and from the army perspective. But I think a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that so many people, for one, were very skeptical of standing armies, and two, in times of peace, I should say, and secondly, who would have ever thought after the British had surrendered at Yorktown, including the Treaty of Paris, that America would be at war again? Yes, we still had issues with Britain uh, along the Northwest Territory and in the Great Lakes, but from a political ideology standpoint, we've got people whom are convinced that, well, militias can resolve those problems. We don't need standing armies, simply, simply in part because they could be seen as an encroachment to our fundamental liberties. Well, we can debate all we want, but by the time 1812 arrives, what we learned from our previous um segment episode is that is that the um army that was being established was not a true army i probably i won't be afraid to tell you all that i probably uh would go about mentioning that again at some other point in this uh series but the army that it is being raised is being um is being done so by the state's in other words, the states are the ones picking up the burden to um, go about ensuring that um, that the government has enough uh, men whom are um, willing to um, go forward in a time in answering the call of duty. So 1812 at the onset, there's a lot of uncertainty, and we will have to uh, address that in this uh, podcast segment episode. We will address... Um, Incidents from Fort Mackinac to uh, Fort Detroit. I know I mentioned Fort Detroit a great deal uh, from the previous podcast series, but for those of you who are new uh, to my podcast, especially with this episode, or not episode, but this uh, book topic uh, series discussion, I will um, certainly uh, readdress uh, Fort Detroit. We also have to learn how, um, we also have to go about learning how a particular um town, of course it's now a city, but in um, in the late 18th century and into the start of the 19th century, it might as well have been referred to as a town or a village, but how the post itself was able to uh, prevent um, further, um, I don't know if I'd say expansion is the right word, but further uh, encroachment that would um, have uh, great potential in jeopardizing the well-being of settlers American settlers, that is, whom are already um, stationed, not just around this town, but not far from it. So we have a lot of ground to uh, cover in this um, upcoming uh, episode. We will also be discussing about um, Britain's um, naval strength compared to that of uh, the Americans. Of course, we did learn from the previous episode about um how many British warships there were at sea compared to um, how many the Americans had, but I did find some other uh, relevant information that uh, should not be uh, ignored. Uh, that will be of uh, useful um, that will be of uh, useful knowledge in this uh, series, uh, not just series, but per this episode. So here we go with our first uh, leadoff question: Where did Britain's naval powers stand along the Upper Lakes? at the outset of war being declared. Well, in June of 1812, Britain's naval strength along the upper lakes is superior. I mean, if it's not superior, that ought to be seen as a red flag. I mean, after all, folks, you know, Britain not only is the mightiest power in the world from an economical standpoint, but she has the most powerful military in the world. And while, yes, um, a ragtag band of uh, soldiers, along with, um, along with uh, generals from George Washington to Henry Knox and Nathaniel Green, I could go down the line, nearly 30 years earlier, had um, gone about helping defeat the world's mightiest empire. Even in the midst of um, all of that um, happening um, two, decade, two or three decades before, times have changed. Britain hasn't gone away. And her um, military force, in terms of her numbers, in terms of her superiority, that has not changed. So in June of 1812, uh, Britain's naval strength along the upper lake, on the upper lakes, is superior. Britain's um, naval strength comprised of four premier state-of-the-art vessels. You had the General Hunter that had ten guns and uh, six-pounders, meaning that uh, the General Hunter could fire uh, cannonballs that were six pounds at enemy ships. The Caledonia had three guns, including a set of long guns. Lady Prevost with 12 guns and a gun type being a nine-pounder. And then the granddaddy of them all being a ship of war. That was the, you know, the giant of the ships. Uh, Those were the ships that have... um, say, at least a dozen uh, masts. Well, I don't know if I would say a dozen masts, but they have multiple masts to where you've got, um, to where you have um, a lot of sails um, supporting the ship. These are the big guys that can probably hold at least, um, probably a hundred or more uh, men. So the ship of war, being the Queen Charlotte, had 10 guns, And as for her cannonball size, she was equipped to accommodate 24-pounders. You can accommodate 24-pounders. Can you imagine the damage you can inflict upon the enemy? It's pretty awesome, but yet scary, to say the least. The British or uh, Provincial Marine, given that we learned from the previous uh, episode about how the uh, Provincial Marine is the, was the official name they um, even though it is still considered the British Royal Navy but um but along the upper uh, lakes the uh, they go by the provincial marine so the british or provincial marine comprised of extra schooner vessels including a dozen bateaux in amherstburg as for the united states navy that's another story in june of 1812 the us navy has only one vessel equipped with multiple guns being um, the Adams at fourteen, including an eighteen pounder uh, cannon, the United States Navy does have seven schooners with including three sloops and multiple bateaux at Detroit. However, as great as it is that we may have seven schooners and three sloop three sloops with multiple bateaux, the bigger problem is that the seven schooners and three sloops are all unarmed. So if you only have one vessel on, being on the United States side that's um, that has um, that is equipped with multiple guns, you really are at a total loss. I, I hate to sound negative, but but you know if you're going to have um, vessels that can uh, go up against the world's mightiest power. They need to be as well equipped as possible. They don't have to maybe be top of the line like Britain, but they need to be. They need to be um, in better shape than what they are. If not a hundred percent, they could be at least maybe fifty percent better. Is it fair to say, come June eighteen twelve, that British naval forces were in control of Lake Ontario? Yes. Their presence along or I should say throughout Lake Ontario had a profound impact on American forces logistically as the means for transporting supplies to existing forces already stationed along the upper lakes became virtually non existent. Well, I'm sure some of you are are wondering now, where exactly are the American forces along the upper lakes? Well, General Brigadier General William Hull whom most of you all learned a great deal about from uh, the previous uh, podcast uh, book topic series we did, being men of uh, patriotism and uh, courage about um, uh, Fort Meigs and the War of eighteen twelve. Brigadier General William Hull is trying to um, he's trying to uh, make his way to Fort Detroit, and he does get there, but the problem is that he's got all of his eggs in one basket. And by doing so, folks, one of the biggest mistakes he's going to make, he's going to put every supply, all of the supplies are going to go into the atoms. And what I mean by supplies are like essentials, like muskets and rifles. And how about personal papers? And what I mean by personal papers, folks, are government papers. So in other words had William Hull been a little bit smarter and and uh, coordinated his strategy better to where he said, okay, let's put some of the provisions on the Adams, and if we can get access to one of these other schooners or sloops, even though they're not armed, but we could put other uh, personal belongings of vital importance in uh, these other vessels. So this way, if... The big guy doesn't make it, being the Adams. And yet, and the and the Adams um, not only is captured by the enemy, and including uh, personal uh, documents, the enemy may not have gotten everything, but at the same time, we're still okay. We're safe because other documents and other vital um, provisions are in other vessels that have not been uh detected by the enemy. So the bottom line is, William Hole has, he's, this would be the first of many mistakes, but in terms of putting all your eggs in one basket, and that is putting all of the necessary provisions and personal papers onto this boat, the Adams, with the intention that, okay, this ship's going to make it to its destination being Fort Detroit without getting caught. Don't assume anything. Even in 1812, You can't assume anything. Daniel Tompkins, whom whom was governor of New York at the time that the War of 1812 broke out, he ordered all military supplies going west to Detroit be held indefinitely at Oswego. Oswego is uh, right along Lake Ontario. It's uh, north of Syracuse, It's not too far just south of Watertown and not too far from uh, Lowellville in Lewis County. Now, Daniel Tompkins is a very unique uh, individual because he went on to um, serve as uh, James Monroe's uh, vice president. And there is a county in New York State in the Finger Lakes region known as Tompkins County, named after uh, Governor Daniel Tompkins. But there is a um, town in uh, Tompkins County that um, is very well known. It's home to a prestigious Ivy League school, the town being Ithaca, uh, the Ivy League school known as Cornell University. Ithaca is located on the uh, southern end of uh, Cayuga Lake. So when you think of Tompkins County, you can think of uh, Ithaca and uh, Cornell University, including um, Cayuga Lake and I can say that my wife and I, given that we've been to the Finger Lakes twice, we have been to Ithaca uh, both times that we've been to the Finger Lakes, and it is a great, um, it's not a huge city, but it's a great uh, place to visit, and uh, we've seen Cornell, uh, we've walked along. we've um, ventured into the uh, Ithaca Commons, um, Ithaca has a lot folks, so a lot of a lot of things to do, especially um, outdoor stuff with um, Hiking, so for those of you who are big into uh, hiking, yeah, Ithaca's got lots of gorges. You won't regret it for one minute. So yes, Daniel Tompkins is very, very smart, and he's very prudent in realizing that, look, if we send any more military supplies westward at this point in time, the enemy is not only going to seize our vessels, but they're going to seize our supplies to the point where we're not going to have anything to fall back onto. So, in the meantime, there's got to be a temporary halt until a safe route can be implemented via waterway along Lake Ontario. That's going to take a lot of uh, better uh, planning, to say the least. The U.S. Army's uh, communication communication lines, already impacted by a never-ending fleet of Indian War canoes operating along the Detroit River and Lake Erie's western shore, whom uh, harassed General William Hull's efforts in his trying to perform an attack that could lead to capturing Fort Malden in Amherstburg, Ontario. Even though, yes, General William, Brigadier General William Hull was a veteran of the American Revolutionary War, one of his big weaknesses is that he is not an experienced officer when it came to fighting uh, from a, a tactical uh, standpoint. And by not being um, a strong officer and not being able to demonstrate good uh, tactical skills or good uh, tactical planning, a person like William Hull is, be- is going to become all the more vulnerable. And he's just shy of 60 years old by this time. Now, I'm not saying that you know having an officer just shy of 60 years old is a bad thing, but here's where we're um, missing the torch. Yes, we will have some other officers who will step up who are younger, but given that we haven't really set a a true uh, foundation as of yet in terms of um, who's going to lead the way and whom can set a good example for the uh, soldiers, it just doesn't uh, bode well. Which two groups did Native Americans along the Northwest Territory rely upon for preventing further American westward expansion? How about uh, the fur trading companies operating along the Upper Lakes region, as well as British Indian agents? the majority of the fur traders and indian agents went about marrying into uh indian tribal network alliances including engaging in what is called uh cohabitation that is where a man and woman lived under the same roof but weren't officially married in other words when um, a fur trader or an indian agent went in went about marrying into the uh indian tribal network alliance he wasn't, he was not only marrying the tribe that his wife was affiliated with, but he was also marrying into a greater alliance network based upon whom the tribe had strong relations with. So oftentimes it's easy to assume that, okay, well, if we're dealing with one or two tribes, we don't have to worry about everybody else. That's not true. If you've got multiple tribes that have comprised of an alliance, like, for example, say, um, in its heyday, the um, Five Nation, or the, the Iroquois League, you, you know, there was the Oneida, the Cayuga, Seneca, Onondaga, and uh, Onondaga, Oneida, uh, Cayuga, um, Seneca, and, um, well, it'll come back here at some point, uh, Mohawk, there we go. <laughs> that was a twister there, to say the least, folks. Uh, but anyways, when you have a, an alliance like that, um you know i don't know if uh, at that well the the uh five nation iroquois alliance had dissolved by this time but when you have alliances like that regardless of whether there are indian um agents or fur traders alliances in general can um really um they help um they help out immensely they also can keep out those whom are not welcomed, that is, other Indian tribes whom don't um, share the same interests, or could, you know, simply be posing as a threat, kind of like how the Erie Nation um, basically was um, pretty much uh, badly dissembled by the um, by the Iroquois Nation, um, given the fact that the Eries had sided with the Huron during the uh, Beaver Wars and did not uh, take the side of the uh, Iroquois, being the uh, larger uh, tribes of the uh, greater eastern uh, woodlands uh, region. So these agents and traders um, have a lot of authority, and by doing so, they are overseeing the trade of goods between Indian and European societies. So they don't mind uh, doing business with... um, with the uh, Europeans, or I should say the Americans, given that there are, by this time in 1812, you've got 18 states, but for the British, they, they've they made this promise to the Indians, well, we're looking after you. In other words, by looking after you, you know, we'll see to it that, um, that there's no further um, westward encroachment by, um, by American uh, settlers. So, uh, the Northwest uh, Fur Company operated in the region from, uh, lakes, from Lake Superior to the Upper Mississippi, and then you had the Southwest Fur Company known as the Michilimackinac Company, which focused its energies around the Lake Michigan Basin. Now we're going to get into um, military forts here. Uh, which uh, Michigan Fort dated back to the American Revolutionary War as a means for controlling the Straits of Mackinac? I would imagine most of you probably know what the Straits of Mackinac are, but for those of you who don't, uh, what the Straits of Mackinac are, they, it's, um, the Straits of Mackinac uh, connect uh, Lakes Michigan and Huron. You know, if you look at the Great Lakes carefully on a map, they're all uh, connected. Ontario and Erie are connected. Um, Erie, Erie. Erie may not be completely joined next to Huron, but the Detroit River is the river that is uh, in the middle between uh, Huron and Erie. So uh, water going from Lake Erie flows into the Detroit River, Detroit River into Huron. Huron and Michigan connect one another, and then, of course, Michigan uh, connects with uh, Superior and and so forth. So it's all... Um, a big like, like a big jigsaw puzzle. They all connect in some way or form or another, but uh, the Straits of Mackinac, without the Straits of Mackinac, uh, Lakes Michigan and Huron um, are not able to connect to, with one another. So by uh, the Straits of Mackinac not only are connecting Lake Michigan and Huron, this also had means for being able to enhance uh, such trade like being the fur trade. So the answer to uh, which Michigan fort, dating back to the American Revolutionary War, um, as a means for uh, controlling the Straits of Mackinac uh, to enhancing the fur trade, that answer is uh, Fort Mackinac, which at the start or at the beginning of the War of 1812's outset was in the U.S. Uh, was in the hands of the United States. You know that's a good thing, but I'm beginning to wonder. Uh, will the united states be able to keep this fort especially at the war's outset june of 1812 major general isaac brock dispatched a canoe party 1200 miles to validate that state of war existed 1200 miles folks i don't know how many days that um that took but talk about journeying 1200 miles folks no no airplanes uh, no trains, so the only way you're going to get there is by canoe. They, you know, they, they sent the whole, like the whole flotilla, flotilla, like a fleet of canoes, to say the least. So, this same canoe party returned with an order to attack, which happened on July 17, eighteen twelve, almost one month after um, the United States had declared war on Britain. So on July 17, 1812, British and Native American forces, around 70 war canoes and 10 bateaux, under the command of British Captain Charles Roberts, assaulted Fort Mackinac, resulting in U.S. Lieutenant Porter Hanks and his force of 60 men. 60 men, folks, that might seem like a lot, but... (laughs) Think about how many um, Indians, uh, Indian warriors and British uh, soldiers or or British troops that Lieutenant Porter Hanks and his force of 60 men are going up against. And they're coming from all directions. They're not not sending everybody um, straight ahead in one uh, position. They're coming at all different angles. Well, U.S. Lieutenant uh, Porter Hanks U.S. Army Lieutenant Porter Hanks. I hate to say this, but he's a chicken. He really is. His. P- L- Lieutenant Porter Hanks and his force of 60 men surrendered Fort Mackinac without firing a shot. To me, this is pure um, ignorance. And Lute- Lieutenant Porter Hanks thought he was doing him. He, was, he thought he was doing the community a favor by sparing them. He didn't spare them. All of the uh, island residents, those people already living on Mackinac Island, they are now forced to take an, elite, an, an oath allegiance to become subjects of the United Kingdom, England. So in other words, um, Major General Isaac Brock is telling them, look, if you want to still live here, that's fine, on this island, but now that we're in control, you will be required to take up uh, your allegiance to the crown. Sure, you may have gotten your independence years ago if you, were, if you were living then, but times have changed. If you want to live here, you're going to take up loyalties with us. If not, uh, we can execute you, or we can have you become a prisoner of war, Uh, We could do just about anything we would want to do to make your life miserable. So this is not a good situation for the uh, residents of Mackinac Island. Why was the loss of Mackinac Island so detrimental to American forces? Number one, uh, Lieutenant Porter Hanks and the 60-man unit under his helm had not been able to establish any solid alliances with Indian tribal nations along the Upper Lakes, whom prior to war's beginning, were not sure which side to take. So believe it or not, folks, we have a handful of um, Indian tribes along the Upper Lakes. And what are exactly the Upper Lakes, I should say, folks? Well, when I think of the Upper Lakes, I think of like Superior, Huron, Michigan, and Erie. But right now, I would have to say that if one asked me, given where all this um, fighting is going on, I would say Huron and Erie right now so yes, it's one thing to have a fort established, but why didn't Porter Hanks take the time to establish any uh relations with Indian tribes? was he completely convinced that every that all Indian tribes hated the United States? Maybe he had a reason to think that way, but at the same time had he made an effort to try to make some kind of um connection or uh, relationship with two or three tribes in enough time before this surprise attack happens happened, it could have made the difference between life and death and perhaps a difference between um, victory and um, cowardice. How about this one? Secondly, after Mackinac Island um, got surrendered to the British and their Indian allies, Lieutenant Hanks' superior officers went about charging him with cowardice at Fort Mackinac. I'm sure most of you know what cowardice is. What do you really think it is? Cowardice, to me, is refusal to take a stand, including not putting up a fight against the enemy. Okay, yes, Lieutenant Porter Hanks was outnumbered, but don't you think he could have had enough time to have set up cannons i mean i i don't know how much equipment he had on him but he could have uh, set up some stuff he could have at least maybe he could have made the minimal requirements of shutting up um, maybe one or two cannon depending whatever he had available he could have at least he could have made at least a 50% modification to fort mackinac to where the chances of a surrender may not have been as bad Well, the uh, British attack on Fort Detroit was delayed. Well, the British attack on Fort Detroit delayed Lieutenant Hanks' court-martial trial. But yet, a British cannonball penetrated into the room where Hanks was present, killing him instantly. Porter Hanks never lived to see his um, trial As unfortunate as it is that he died the way he did, it might have been a blessing that he died, because he would have been found guilty, and as much as I hate to say this, he might have even been executed for cowardice. The American debacle at Mackinac resulted in neutral tribal nations shifting their allegiance to the British, and rightfully so. The war canoes from Mackinac now went north to Fort Malden, including a small American post at Fort Dearborn, located in present-day Chicago, Illinois. What siege in the Michigan Territory took place a month after Fort Mackinac's fall or surrender? How about the siege of Detroit from August 15th to the 16th? The British under Major General Isaac Brock, including their Indian allies under Shawnee prophet or leader Tecumseh. Tecumseh, what I mean by prophet here, folks, is that Tecumseh was trying to, um, he was leading a revival. He was wanting to get his people back into living the old ways of life. That might sound bad, but Tecumseh was not into um, the new way of living, and that is. Indians ceding their territory to the Americans to avoid um, further wars. He, he didn't want to see his people become um, Americanized, in other words, living lifestyles that are just simply unbecoming, because, because he already saw where some Indian leaders were more than happy to um, to adopt a new style of living, most notably Little Turtle, uh, who led the uh, Miami uh, Nation uh, at uh, Kekionga what we know as uh, present-day Fort Wayne, Indiana. So Tecumseh was trying to be basically a savior to uh, those Indians uh, who needed to uh, return back to the old ways of life, and this is basically their last stand. So, yes, General Isaac Brock, including their Indian allies under Shawnee Prophet leader Tecumseh, go about engaging in a handful of intimidation um, actions as well as trickery tactics that ultimately resulted in U.S. Brigadier General William Hull surrendering Fort Detroit as well as the town of Detroit. What the uh, British and the Indians were doing is that they were um, bringing their canoes very close, and then they were... They would uh, get uh, troops and Indians out of these uh, canoes. They would um, come very close, pretend as though they were ready to fire, then they would fall back, and they kept doing this multiple times to where it pretty much stressed William Hull out. But yet William Hull could have um, established um, something. He could have ordered his men to have fired upon the Indians, It wouldn't have taken much to have done that, but yet he didn't even engage in in the most basic, uh, minimal um, actions for self-defense. Well, like Lieutenant Porter Hanks at Fort Mackinac, Brigadier General William Hull is accused of cowardice, but worst of all, he got charged with treason, selling out his country to the enemy without putting up a fight. William Hull's defense centered upon saving the community from Indian savagery, or that is, massacre. Well, yes, you might have saved the the community from uh, loss of life, but don't you think that your community would have wanted you to have put up a fight? Even if you lost, you could still say that you didn't um, lose without excuses. Well, the court findings ruled different. William Hull was supposed to be sentenced to death, folks, by execution. James Madison, however, as president of the United States, stepped in and um, revived, or he um, revised the um, sentencing. Instead of um, firing or uh, death by execution, say via firing squad, William Hull was um, he was um, pardoned. Uh, he he was spared, but he never saw any um, military action again in this in the War of eighteen twelve. The uh, surrender of Fort Detroit was his last um, military um, action. Um, just how severe was the American uh, defeat or surrender to the British at Fort Detroit? It was on a scale of. Um, I know 1 to 5, you would say 1 being not um, not severe and 5 being um, extremely severe. I'm going to change it from 5 to 10, 5 being severe, 10 being um, beyond severe, or you could say incredibly severe. I'm going to give it a 10. 10 being incredibly severe, for one, the material losses were irreplaceable, given the British seized roughly 2,400 muskets and rifles. Think about it, folks. 2,400 muskets and rifles have been uh, seized. It's not like we can just call up and say, uh, President Madison, um, tell your war secretary um, that we need uh, more, um, you know, Mr. Eustace, the uh, the war secretary, that, oh, we need more uh, supplies and we need them ASAP, because we just, not only did we surrender the fort, but now we've lost everything. It doesn't work that way in 1812. And if that's bad enough, how about large quantities of gunpowder and lead from the fort's arsenal are taken, as well as 39 artillery pieces. Just recently, uh, I learned some uh, very unique stuff about gunpowder and just how um, valuable of an asset it was in the lead-up to the American Revolutionary War. Uh, I'm reading a book called "The Indispensables" about the uh, Marblehead, um, the Marblehead, um, the men from Marblehead, Massachusetts, and how they um, pretty much gave their lives in um, in uh, helping George Washington and his forces at multiple times be able to uh, carry out their missions and uh, being able to uh, still keep the flame of independence alive on a battlefield. But long story short, um, there are three. Uh, key uh, ingredients to making gunpowder. You got to have charcoal, you have to have sulfur, and then you have to have uh, what's called potassium nitrate or what's known as saltpeter. Well, charcoal and sulfur are easy to come by, but, um, but access to saltpeter or potassium nitrate is not something that the colonists had uh, access to. As a matter of fact, leading up to um, Lexington and Concord, Um, especially in 1774, there were those in Massachusetts who wanted to uh, make their own gunpowder. The only problem is that it takes about half a year for uh, Saltpeter to uh, form. So where do you think the colonists were getting their gunpowder from? They were getting it from England. England has better means of um, providing the colonists, her subjects, with the substance, but she was also getting uh, about 2,000... um, tons worth of uh saltpeter from India so england uh given that she's the mightiest empire in the world even well before the war of 1812 england n- knows how to get the resources and be able to give them to the uh colonists at their disposal but yet the property still uh belongs to that of the crown not to uh the people but anyways uh it was just something i uh was uh, intrigued by because uh you know, there again, certain uh, resources are should not be taken for granted, especially during the times that we're uh, talking about. Uh, so, secondly, Fort Detroit's fall meant all remaining undecided Indian tribes now knew where their direct loyalties lied with, being the British whom they felt could deliver on their promise of creating a neutral Indian buffer territory or what's called a region stationed between Canada and the United States. The British had promised the Indians that, you know, look, uh, you side with us during this conflict and we prevail regardless. We will see to it that you all get this buffer uh, region. The buffer region being what we know is what's left of the Northwest Territory. uh, Given that Ohio is, is already in the Union, But, of course, the British wouldn't mind retaking Ohio and bringing all that land that the Indians were forced to cede from the 1795 Treaty of Greenville, being southern and eastern Ohio, back into the hands of their peoples. Why not? So, you talk about a um, a lot of things that lie at stake here. Not just for the British, but really for the United States, given that this is our second war for independence. It's not a political one, it's an economical. Uh, The U.S. brig ship Adams was seized at Fort Detroit, and guess what it got renamed? Detroit. By British forces, Brigadier General William Hull's surrender of Fort Detroit now meant the enemy, being Britain, was in full control of the upper lakes, most notably Huron and Erie, As for the United States, she has no armed vessels above Niagara Falls. The entire northwest frontier from the Ohio River northward is now open to unlimited Indian raids. So our national security, folks, is really, really in serious trouble. Uh, Was President Madison still in Washington around the time the Fort Detroit debacle took place? No, he and his wife, Dolly, were already en route to their estate in Virginia, being Montpelier, located in Orange County, probably about 30 miles away from uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, Monticello estate. They were um, on their way, um, getting ready to go to Montpelier. They hadn't really gone very far. They uh, met up, uh, they were met up with a messenger, or I should say a dispatch rider, whom alerted Mr. Madison to the disaster at Detroit. So, unfortunately, folks, um, President Madison and his wife, Dolly, did not have the luxury of being able to take time off here. Um, They had to um, go back to Washington, uh, given that there is a matter of uh, national security urgency. Washington, D.C., was not a good place to be in during the summer because of heat and the potential for um, a a whole host of diseases. However, the surrender of Detroit is very unsettling for the Madison administration. Upon returning to Washington, two decisions were made. Access naval control of the lakes and send another army to recover Detroit. Good plans, but the big question is can we execute this go-around? Uh, Following the surrender of Fort Detroit, did the United States have any armed vessels along the Great Lakes? I'm sure most of you are thinking no, and why are you even asking the question? Well, folks, I can tell you that there's some good news here. That uh, there is a vessel along the Great Lakes still in existence or still in operation even after the uh, surrender of Fort Detroit. This vessel was a 16-gun brig called the Oneida, which was in the hands of Lieutenant Melanchthon Woolsey on Lake Ontario. And for those of you who aren't sure what a brig is, it's a uh, two-masted, square-rigged ship. Lieutenant Woolsey had success in capturing Canadian merchant schooner Lord Nelson, which he renamed the Scourge to transforming Julia, an American merchant schooner, into a gunboat. Now, I know I probably mentioned about gunboats earlier, but um, some of you are probably curious to know what exactly is a gunboat. Well, it's a small, fast ship where guns were fitted for use in shallow coastal waters and rivers. Lt. Woolsey wrote a letter to Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton demanding additional funding for building a larger flotilla, a.k.a. fleet, but doing so required two units or squadrons, with one on Lake Ontario being the lower lake as it was located below Niagara Falls and Lake Erie, the upper lake, as it was located above the falls. Now, prior to the siege of Detroit... But after Fort Mackinac fell, what did General Hull order Captain Nathan Held of Fort Dearborn to do right away? General Hull ordered Captain Held to evacuate Fort Dearborn as soon as possible. And I kind of question this evacuation, but with the way things are going right now for the United States, I just don't feel as though we really have a true concept of how to go about fortifying our forts. Well, Captain Held did um, adhere to what uh, Brigadier General William Hole advised him to do, but Captain Held went about having to separate whatever resource supplies he could um, bring with him, but yet he had to also leave uh, certain resource supplies behind and this was done simply in part because for one he didn't have time on his side I mean and this was largely in part because Indians are nearby they're uh, canvassing the area they are looking for their next target so some people would say well such and such items can be replaced your life can't well that is true but at the same time if you're going to leave behind valuable papers that could um, jeopardize our nation's national security, then you're just making things worse. So, for Captain Held, he is uh, going to a new destination, being the Indiana Territory, to the east. He was to meet up with a fellow named Captain William Wells. He just wasn't an ordinary fellow. It turns out that uh, Captain Nathan Held's Father in law is Captain William Wells. So, Captain William Wells has with him 50 Miami Warriors, whom would go about assisting Captain Held in his um, group of 100 soldiers, including civilians, behind evacuating Fort Dearborn. Although Captain Held did lead a group of uh, 100 soldiers, including civilians, out of Fort Dearborn, the evacuation, folks, um, it didn't go so well. They were ambushed by the Potawatomi tribe, and this ambush was de- was deadly, folks. Um, only about 20 soldiers survived unscathed. But I have to wonder: Do these 20 soldiers get to um, leave freely? Do they are they going to be allowed to take an oath saying that they won't take up arms with their um, nation? just so that they can live um, peacefully without um, the fear of being um, arrested or uh, executed. Well, sadly for uh, Captain Nathan Held, um, his father-in-law was among the handful that were dead. Um, Reading what I um, read and learned about this, and I know I've mentioned it before from other podcast topic series, especially in recent ones, like the victory with no name, including uh, the siege of Fort Meigs. Indians and uh, Europeans, when they couldn't reach agreements on things, tensions were nasty. And it didn't even have to involve agreements, or, or it didn't have to involve any kind of um, discussions. Um, many of them simply did not like each other, Um and it got very bad to the point where ex- extreme violence w- was done. I mean, it might be fair to say that there was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, and for many of the Indians, they saw uh, the Europeans, white settlers, as invasive species. They're not native. They're not welcomed. They uh, bring problems. They are um, they are known for spreading diseases, which did wipe out many Indian populations, as we have uh, learned. So um, sadly, that uh, for Captain Held, his father-in-law, being um, Captain William Wells, dies. Uh, he, along with several other uh, people, were massacred by the Potawatomi tribe. Those twenty soldiers whom did escape unharmed uh, were either killed or sent off to various Indian villages, including uh, a handful of civilians, whom for the most part were. Um, probably never heard from again. So just because you survive an onslaught, that doesn't mean that you um, that you can um, return home safely and be allowed to take a uh, pardon. That is where you are, not, that you've agreed not to um, take up arms. Uh, what fort within the Indiana Territory dating back to 1794 would serve as a critical military base given it lied on an important line of communication between the Ohio Valley and Detroit. How about Fort Wayne, located in present-day Northeast Indiana? Northeast Indiana, where Fort Wayne is located, lies roughly 18 miles west of the Ohio border and 50 miles south of the Michigan border. In 1812, the United States and Britain were in high demand for securing this fort. September 6, 1812. Just shy of uh, three months um, after uh, Congress has declared war, the Indian siege of Fort Wayne began. It was led by warriors from Pot, from the Potawatomi and Miami nations under chiefs Winamac and Five Medals. The Native Americans assaulted the fort from the east side, to burning homes of surrounding or nearby village. And I tell you, as for um, the officer whom is. Um, leading the um, command for the um, army at Fort, U.S. Army at Fort Wayne. <laughs> he's no saint, and he's no good role model either. His name's Captain James Rhea. He is an incompetent officer. He was drunk during the initial siege, folks. What is with our leaders, folks? It's bad enough we had two leaders surrender without putting up a fight. Are we going to make three times a charm for all the wrong reasons? Knowing that not only do we have an officer who's supposed to be in charge whom is drunk during the initial siege, but for all we know, he could wave a truce flag only to give the enemy what they want, full control of Fort Wayne. Well, thank heavens we've got some men below, Captain James Rhea, who... um, know how to use some common sense and step up to the plate when it really matters most. Benjamin Stickney, Fort Wayne's Indian agent, he took over for Captain Rhea. He was joined by Lieutenants Daniel Curtis and Philip Ostrander, whom rallied the troops in repelling two Native American assaults. Thank goodness people know how to step up when it really matters. Two days later, September 8th, Indiana Territorial Governor William Henry Harrison and Brigadier General James Winchester led a joint effort behind reinforcing Fort Wayne to where they arrived in enough time to prevent Tecumseh and British regulars from launching further attacks. The uh, American-U.S. joint uh, relief effort at Fort Wayne led British forces and Indian allies to retreat back east into Ohio and back north to the Michigan Territory. The, su- the success alone at Fort Wayne, including um, defense of Fort Harrison in Indiana to the south to Fort Madison in what we know as present day Iowa, brought immense amounts of relief to frontier people in the Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri territories. Folks, these are times of uncertainty, but yet with, time of, uh, with but yet with times of uncertainty, there does seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And that certainly proved to be ever so true at Fort Wayne. I don't know what would have happened had Fort Wayne fallen. I don't know what would have happened had men like Benjamin Stickney to uh, Lieutenants Daniel Curtis and Philip Ostrander had not come to uh, the rescue of their uh, fellow um, soldiers below them whom needed someone to look up to or whom needed better uh, leadership to look up to. Well, they got that leadership, as well as the arrival of uh, Brig- as well as the arrival of Brigadier General James Winchester and uh, Territorial Governor William Henry Harrison, whom is an officer as well. So, I can honestly say that I feel a little bit better now that we have something to feel good about. It may not be a grand slam victory, but we have something to feel good about, knowing that we have pushed the uh, British and their Indian allies back east to Ohio and back north to Michigan, but it doesn't mean that we can fully rest on our la- on our laurels and assume that we have seen the last of um, further uh, westward encroachment. Well, what I do know is that we have covered a lot of ground, and we are at the end of this uh, podcast um, segment episode, but when I'm on the air again next, we are going to learn about... Um, about whom uh, Sec- Navy Secretary Paul Hamilton uh, chooses for his uh, new commander of the uh, Great Lakes Fleet. I think the person you'll be learning about is, um, is a, um, he's a very unique character, to say the least. I've uh, learned some stuff about him before, but when I uh, read this book, I learned even more about him. He's um, one of those people that has expertise in one area— and while he doesn't have a whole lot of expertise in the other, he's got enough knowledge and enough smarts to still make up to make up for whatever uh, deficiencies he has, because I will tell you this: he would be a far better um, commander than say Lieutenant Porter Hanks and let alone uh, Brigadier General William Hull. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air with you all and wherever you all may live. Continue to stay safe and thank you for being such ardent listeners. Take care.